0: Tonight on Arena Tom Meskell on Silva Lumina A Forest of Illuminations At the National Botanic Gardens And photographer Dennis O'Regan On his time on tour With David Bowie one is the text. You can tweet the programme at RTE Arena. And don't forget, of course, if you are so inclined, you can watch us on our live stream at rte.ie forward slash arena. And good to be back with you after a little bit of break for Christmas. Thanks to Kev for looking after the house for a couple of days last week. Um, my first show of 2024. So Happy New Year to all of the Arena listeners on this Monday evening, if I'm not too late to be saying that. The Silva Lumina are lights of growth. Both are an array of illuminated artworks at the National Botanic Gardens, marking the start of a fortnight of events aimed at tackling the stigma around mental health. Silva Lumina has been created by County Mayo based artist Tom Meskill with the help of 50 community artists. Uh, the After Dark Experience was commissioned by the First Fortnight Mental Health and Cultural Festival, now in its 13th year. Festival opened on Friday will feature stage performances, exhibition, gigs, poetry, panel discussions, interviews, films and much else besides. Delighted to be joined in studio this evening by Tom Meskell and Festival Chief Executive Maria Fleming. Tom, I, I must say I was looking at um, the Silva Lumina, some of the images that are online on the first fortnight festival uh, website lights of growth even the, the Latin title Silva Lumina lights of growth that English title it really gives us a a wonderful sense of hope and, and looking forward really um, how did the whole idea come about
1: well just to home in on the title for a second which I'm very proud of but my 16 year old son came up with it because we were wrestling with the title oh, for really? a while. So in one of those car drives, I said, what do you think? And he had a good think. And I went, That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> did, did he come up with the he Silva, did, he Silva did. Lumina? He did. And he, he loves the Latin languages. He's learning Spanish and he, he's just fascinated by Latin languages because we're trying Gaelic and mm. different ways to say what we wanted in a poetic way. And in, in words that would have music to them, like that would sound. And uh, I would never have thought of Latin in a thousand years. And It's just, I love this, And immediately I went, oh, that's it. Absolutely.
0: (laughs) Um, Well, let us us name the the purveyor (laughs) of this or the creator of this type. Paddy Meskell. Thank you very much. much. Yeah, well, congratulations to Paddy. (laughs) Because that's silva, you know, silva meaning to do with the woods, um, all of that uh, type of area, the sylvan forests, all of this type of thing. And then Lumina, the light mixed in with it. But that English translation, while it's not a literal translation, it says something else as well, doesn't it? Lights of growth.
1: According to my Latin scholar,
0: <laughs> he
1: claimed that Silva also had connotations of growth, that it could be used that way. So we we ran with that. Mm. Uh, but we, we did come up with the idea on a car ride, didn't we, Maria? Yeah. Maria approached me and said she um, really liked the work I had done in Philadelphia mm. called Lights in the Darkness, which was a suicide awareness programme, which had a hundred figures outside City Hall in Philadelphia. And um, we started brainstorming and the botanic Mm. gardens were mentioned and personal growth. And we just had a wonderful like two hour conversation and I was on the side of the road in my car. (laughs) And... it didn't change too much from there. No,
2: the the original conversation w- w kind of struck to it. It was really important for us in First Fortnight that the space be some democratised space, a place like not in a gallery yeah. and not even, say, on the grounds of Emma, which would be the grounds of a gallery. We wanted it to be a place where people felt to belong to them and they would go. And uh, within Dublin, everybody owns the Botanic Gardens. If you've made your first communion, you've been in the Botanic <laughs> Gardens. Uh, so we felt that that was, that was yeah. a great space that people would go. And then it just the ideas just made themselves then taking that as the starting yeah. and point. And I suppose
0: the idea of light really speaks directly to what the festival is all about. It struck me this morning, um, it was quite a dark morning. You know, it's typical January type of feel to it this morning. And I was going along on the bicycles on the school run and... Every time I saw a little high-vis vest, suddenly the darkness disappeared and and the light brought a a real levity to the morning, in fact.
2: And I suppose that's what First Fortnight is all about. There's a reason that our Mental Health Arts Festival happens at this time Mm. of year and it is, we see ourselves as a cultural oasis uh, in the darkness of January and just trying to give people an opportunity to start their year in a positive way that isn't forced like New Year, New Me um, New Year, New You uh, uh, that it's something like we we want to build connection, like come together in a positive, celebratory, bright way. Acknowledge the difficulty, acknowledge the darkness, yeah. acknowledge that mental health can be a struggle for everybody. But together with connection through the arts, there's a way through.
0: And I must say, Tom, looking and, and going back to what specifically you've created in Silver Lumina, you might describe it. it's a series of, Lanterns stroke figures, I guess, is is what we're talking about. What are we, if we go to the National Botanic Gardens, what exactly are we we looking at when we see these figures planted around the the gardens? So they're clearly human. Mm.
1: You know, um, I've heard a lot of people saying over the last few days, this is like a Doctor Who movie, but but they're clearly human. So we have a head and torso, and what looks almost like a very long dress. So they're roughly about six and a half or seven feet tall. So slightly bigger than than life size. Yeah. So they're they're above us hmm. and. Um, Instead of arms, I call them the leaves. So, and they're all in quite joyous poses, which was the workshop participants. So each one is designed by someone who was in a workshop and the basic form would be done by themselves with my guidance. And then I brought everything back to my studio and like just made everything really solid and covered them then.
0: So uh, what what are they? What are they made of? The base is...
1: Very agricultural wire, bull wire, and tying wire, and it's held together with tape, and then it's covered in this very special tissue paper, which we call wet strand tissue, which is covered in glue, so it's quite resilient, but it still has that beautiful delicateness. You know, it, it fe- people always worry and go, oh, they're going to be outside in the rain, <laughs> and it's, but it, it'll be fine. You know, they, they, they're quite
0: hardy. Wet wet strength tissue, I suppose, gives us gives us a sense of it does what it says in the in the in the title, (laughs) indeed. And then so that's that's the form that's there, this kind of paper. So then inside that, and I'm guessing this must be an incredible moment. So you make the form and it looks lovely, and that's a lovely shape, and it looks like a human figure. What is and when or what does that moment feel like when you put the light inside and then you illuminate these figures?
1: that's, That's a great point, Sean. Because It's such a long process, particularly with the workshop. So I started in August Mm. and the first time I saw them all lit up together would have been maybe the third week of December. And that was in my studio. So I thought I had seen them. And then the first time I saw them outside... In their proper place with the music was three days ago, four days ago, mm. and I've got to say, I, a tear came out. Yeah, I seeing the lights. It was come very on. emotional, mm. uh, and the music. I know you have a small clip mm. there, and it's absolutely stunning. Um, composed by Colm Musnuddy and um, Brian Hogan, and uh, the two things together, they just go together beautifully and yeah, in I, the gardens yeah I want, I, want,
0: I want to listen to a little bit of that yeah. music because I was, I was listening to it earlier today and it starts off and there's, there's a wonderful ambience to it and feeling all around it but then about halfway through it kind of takes a slight shift in, in I don't know what the particular wind instrument could be a clarinet could be a flute could be a synthesised instrument but it comes in anyway and I'll take it from that point just so about halfway through it's a seven or eight minute piece in total halfway through this is what we begin to hear So that's just a little flavor of the soundscape uh, for Silver Lumina. Silver Lumina, the, the Illuminations that we're talking about. Tom Meskell is with us in studio this evening, as Maria Fleming uh, of of the first Fortnite festival. The music created by Brian Hogan and Colm O'Snoddy, uh, from people who know him from Kila and and many other iterations as well. But there is such an atmosphere to that music as well, and it has a it has that brightness about it without be uh, without overstating things. It's not jolly jolly. Which was a lot of what we get around Christmas. No harm in that, but sometimes you need to kind of pull back a bit from that, don't you?
1: Yeah. And and it's it's meditative. Mm. And w- w- with the conversations I had with Colum and Brian, we talked about breathing and breathing deeply and reflecting and being within yourself and I think that music does it well it does it for me mm. uh, and it makes me breathe deeper when I listen to it
0: yeah it is it has. A, it certainly has a, a calming effect just one thing before I come back to Marie on it you mentioned a couple of times workshops and I mentioned that there were community artists involved in the making of these uh, figures as well just to tell me a little bit more about those workshops there was one that particularly interested me was it Kilo is that how I say the name That's of the place right. in County Longford
1: now those men as we're saying it, they'll be punching the air. But they're a lovely bunch of guys, clothes men shed, and they would have been farmers and people involved in metal fabrication and woodwork and things like that. So are I think they're super creative, but they wouldn't call themselves artists or creative. So I did a day with them. Now, I have worked with them before and we have a great working relationship. And they were over the moon with mm. what came out of it. Well, they're, you, they're described so the wire,
0: you, you described the wire as agricultural wire. So was there a sense that they felt more at home? Perhaps yes. that it wasn't some kind of artistic yes. medium that they felt, well, that's nothing yes. got to do with what I do for my life.
1: Exactly. And it's there and it was their tools. So, uh, well, I would bring my own set of tools, but they're all like really good wire snips and things yeah. like that. And you can see they're perfectly comfortable with this.
0: Yeah, This is their... They know how to handle this type of material. How important is that aspect of not just this, Maria, uh, but I'm sure other parts of the festival as well, that community involvement uh, in in what is done as opposed to it's just an artistic expression that people sit and watch. You want people to actually be involved.
2: Yes, so across the festival, we're looking at all sorts of ways for people to engage and um, having workshops and participatory events are really important because one of the reasons for the festival is to start conversations around mental health and tom had we i knew from his practice already and we had discussed one of the things that he's very aware of is that when people start creating when your hands are busy and you're doing something you speak in a different way and you have more engaged mm. conversations sometimes or if people get you know some people might describe it as artists getting into a flow uh, of creativity so we really want that in say in the funding application when we were pitching this to the Arts Council and Dublin City Council we referred to them as citizen artists so we wanted people who like might not identify in their day-to-day life as an artist but we would consider everybody has the ability to be an artist and the variety of workshops. We had some that were just open to the general public but we had men's sheds we had the SAIL women's group who are women in recovery um, so there was a real variety of people involved in it, and that was really important to us that every stage of this project uh, there's community.
0: Yeah. And community this year um, I, I think predominantly it has been Dublin based in, in previous iterations but this year you've really moved out uh, into other parts of the country as well. Kader, Donegal, Limerick, Belfast, Cork
2: yeah, and we specifically uh, spoke to the Arts Council about we wanted to be strategic in how we would move out. Mm. We would all be aware that there are parts of the country that have, you know, maybe just through greater population, but have more provision like Cork or Galway would get a lot of artistic work. But we wanted, as a mental health arts festival, we wanted to go to regions where maybe there isn't yeah. as much provision. We know there's artists there. We know there's interest. So we're going to Donegal, Limerick, Kildare, Wexford, Cork, uh, Belfast and we're trying to partner and work with organisations and artists that On are maybe connected those, already yeah. in. yeah,
0: How important is the, the colour green and the various shades of green that you've used for the illuminations uh, uh, Paul, and I'm calling you Paul now because I right. said avoid Paul <laughs> Meskell if you can. relation, no Tom. <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: well, it's it's interesting you say that because usually I default to white, mm. and uh, most of my work is white. And then for this project, that didn't feel right. And I do work very intuitively, so I once I got everything together, I try different shades so that the figures wouldn't merge together that they would kind of pop off each other and it works so well and when they're in the gardens they look like they belong there
0: it brings, comes back to my high vests things yeah, <laughs> that's, yeah, what, that's yeah. what struck <laughs> me about them And <laughs> um, when I looked at them they had that kind of that luminous quality to them maybe um, Maria just as we finish up I know you wanted to talk about some of the other things there's so much happening in the festival but we'll all still be here was one thing that you wanted specifically yes, to talk about just before
2: we finish up on Silver Luna, apart from thanking Tom I want to thank the National Botanic Gardens and the OPW who've been amazing partners for us in that. But we'll all still be here I thought would be a great one to chat about tonight because it's such a festival piece so it's a durational production. Uh, It's going to happen in Smock Alley next Sunday and it's seven hours long And what happens is there's approximately 20 extraordinarily talented, very annoyingly talented musicians (laughs) who compose music and improvise across the seven hours. And each hour they compose a different movement and they tap in and out each other so they can come and go through the performance. But it stays going solidly for seven hours. And in the centre of the stage is a microphone and they invite the audience to come and speak. And you could recite a poem. Home, one that you've written yourself, one that you love. Mm. You could tell us about a recurring dream you have. Tell us about your dog. And they found when they've performed this before, uh, they're they're counting the movement. So I think we're on, I think we'll be starting on movement 36. <laughs> um, and when they've performed this before, they found that a lot of people spoke about their mental health. Oh, uh, I guess
0: if, if it's, it had that durational aspect, yeah. it allows people that you can sit there and let the music wash over you. And when the moment feels right, you can go to the microphone. You're not forced up to it. It, It's all about participating when you're ready to do so.
2: Completely. And the title, We'll All Still Be Here, is is, you could come, you could go away. And if you come back, we'll all still be here.
0: Well, listen, thanks to both of you for being here with me this evening. Tom Meskell and Maria Fleming. uh, Silva Lumina courtesy of Paddy Maskill, that title is at the Botanic Gardens until the 14th of January the event is free but booking registration is essential more details about everything in the festival can be found on firstfortnight.ie competition for you this evening and a fantastic prize involved here the RTE Concert Orchestra and conductor David Brophy will be joined by three members of David Bowie's band Jerry Leonard Mark Platty and St- Sterling Campbell to honour Bowie's legacy and to play some of his great hits live at the gosh Energy Theatre. Also joining them are vocalists Dana Masters, Faye O'Rourke, Shobsey, and Duke Special. We have a pair of tickets to give away to that event, along with an overnight stay at the Trinity City Hotel. To be in with a chance of winning this prize, text your name and the answer to the following question to 51551. We'll announce the winner at the end of the programme. What was David Bowie's Hit album of 1983. Don't go Googling it. Just stay tuned because if you stay tuned we will be talking to Dennis O'Regan photographer uh, on two tours uh, with David Bowie and indeed we will be mentioning the very album that will give you the question or the answer to tonight's question David Bowie's hit album of 1983. 51551 is the text if you know the answer already. A Portrait in Flesh My Life with Bowie is the title of an exhibition opening in Dublin next week it marks the build up to the Dublin Bowie Festival that begins in February the photographer behind Portrait in Flesh My Life with Bowie is Dennis O'Regan delighted to say that Dennis joins me on the programme this evening and we'll be tweeting some images as we go along here and some extraordinary images they are I must say as well Dennis this exhibition uh, opens on Sunday next January the 14th at Rathfarnham Castle Gallery and it tracks the long association in fact that you have had yourself with david bowie during the serious moonlight and glass spider tours and i know you had you had i think you had already worked with the stones possibly when all of this started up but how did the how did the meeting with david bowie or how did the collaboration with david bowie start out
3: uh well it all really began with punk (laughs) in 1976 when uh, um (laughs) a strange beginning when I went to photograph the damned and it was only their second ever uh, concert and they were playing at an art college near St. Albans and at the college um while I was taking pictures it was it was much darker than any show I'd seen before I'm just beginning at this point and I there was another photographer there with his flash gun and I pretended I'd left mine at home (laughs) asked him if I could borrow his (laughs) it turned out he was lodging he was the lodger at Phil house, so. Um, the photographer, Chalky, and I became friends and I would go around to the house. And then um, Philip said that the band was going to Scandinavia on tour. Um, and I'd already decided touring is what I wanted to do. I wanted to travel, take photographs. and I love the music. So um, I said, take me along. And he said, uh, yeah, would you like to come? And I went, yeah, great. So <laughs> I'm sorry. I went to Scandinavia with Lizzie. And that started the ball rolling. In the meantime, I was photographing bands who were appearing in the music papers like Enemy. Um, and then, through various encounters, I ended up on tour with the Rolling Stones. And when I turned up at the show in Rotterdam, it was the first show in 1982. Um, I only went there to take to photograph three songs, and I ended up staying for eight weeks. <laughs> so it was all <laughs> one thing led to another. And mm. then during that tour. The tour accountant the following year became a tour producer and put together the David Bowie serious Moonlight tour. Um, so I got on to him and said, I want to do this because I'd seen David Bowie the year in 1973, the night before he retired, the, the Ziggy Stardust character. And I couldn't believe what I was seeing. So I thought, this is the guy I want to photograph. And then the next year, I saw Queen at the Hammersmith Odeon as well and thought, really want to photograph them. The Stones were the biggest bands in the world. So I decided I wanted to photograph them all. And that's what I ended up doing.
0: <laughs> well, fair enough. You, 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 you <laughs> aim <easy>, high. <laughs> you, you high and you hit the bullseye on several occasions. It has to be said within, uh, within all of that. But I'm interested to, to hear the honesty that you say the night before he retired the Ziggy Stardust character? Because, of course, everyone would say, <laughs> I was there the night he retired the Ziggy Stardust character. Had oh, you, yeah. Had yeah. you any yeah, sense... Yeah, there would have been half a million people in that audience. <laughs> yeah, maybe more. Had you any sense on the <laughs> night before he retired Ziggy Stardust, had you any sense of, of that impending um, annihilation uh, at all? Because I don't think anybody had...
3: No, I knew nothing about it. And apparently half of his band didn't even know. Mm. They heard it on stage as well the following night. Now, the, of course, you only ever heard anything, or I would only ever hear something through newspapers. Mm. So I saw him one night. He retired the next night. But it wasn't until the next day that I knew about it when I saw a newspaper headline, David Bowie Retires. And I could not believe that I just discovered him two days before, and he'd retired. <laughs> yeah. and no one, no one realised he was retiring just the character because that's not what he said. And um, but then the following year, he went off and made an album in France, pinups. And then the following year, I was working in a newsagent during the on Saturdays mm. um, to raise funds to take a, an inter trip around Europe. And um, some girls came into the shop looking for pen and paper, and it turned out that they were coming to see David Bowie, who was recording in the recording studios across the road in Barnes. And he was it. recording Diamond Dogs. <laughs> yep. So I ran home, got my five pound Russian camera, which had nothing except a lens on it, came back and, and photographed David. And then um, I, I sort of missed him arriving. <laughs> so um, I wasn't looking. It was also. Quiet and unassuming. Yeah. So I came back the next day and took some pictures this time. And um, David said uh, you should work for NME, which of course, after Punk, two years later is what what I did. Yeah. So I went off around Europe then. Two weeks later and uh, two months later, and um, that's that's the first time I met him. But it was only a little bit of a a glancing <coughs> glow, really.
0: What's really notable in wh- in what you're saying, Dennis, is it you know how happenstance <laughs> kind of brought you into his uh, realm you know almost by accident and 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 such a relationship that grew grew out of that but let's talk specifically about heading out on the serious moonlight tour uh with him and and what what you were hoping to get? I mean, when you think of the Ziggy Stardust retired, and of course, as we know, there were many versions of or many characters or maybe personae that David Bowie gave us after yeah. that. That's kind of a photographer's um, wish list or dream gig, isn't it? He we, yeah. we'll have one character for this tour and a different character for the next tour, possibly. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah. Well, I had my sights set on him on anyway after that Ziggy Stardust mm-hmm. show. And then I shot him, as I say, outside the studios. And then when the opportunity came up, a um, oh, wealth, it wasn't an opportunity, it was just I heard he was touring. And that's what I wanted to do he was the one I wanted to photograph and tour with so the proposal was I had to put together a business plan so I said I would do a book and we'd get an advance for the book and then the book would repay the tour for all my costs so David loved the idea of a book it was a big project he's doing this tour anyway might as well get it documented by someone so it was a marriage made in heaven in a way but I thought that I would just this is David Bowie the enigma no one had seen Mm. him as the person he became during let's dance the serious moonlight and um, I thought he'd keep me at arm's length and that be, you know I'd be kept away from someone that big I didn't really know I hadn't worked with that no. many people but David was the opposite really and um, he was re- it, there. Came a point when he where he was nagging me to do stuff. I mean, it, it was I, d- I. just didn't realise I would get this kind of access. Yeah, because it so is. I, I mean, travel with him all the time.
0: It's, again, so many people that you speak to about who who were close to David Bowie in terms of professional uh, collaborations with him. You know, you you expect this kind of aloof cool type of character but in fact that he was very approachable I'm I'm going to tweet I'm going to tweet an image here because think of Ziggy Stardust and then this image that we're about to tweet is a very different David Bowie for sure at RTE Arena Uh, I'm looking right now Dennis at uh, one of your photographs David Bowie uh, sitting on a deck chair with a Beautiful blue swimming pool yeah. behind him, <laughs> and the, the you know there's the flash of blonde hair, uh, short at this stage, cut short, and just this tanned body looking out as a kind of an Adonis
3: like yeah, f- um, figure. Yeah, <laughs> the skinny Adonis. Yeah, <laughs> he was. Um, <laughs> he he was uh, a happy man at that point. I mean, that was towards the end of the tour in Australia, so. He'd done the whole world. He'd done Japan, America, Europe, and now it was all coming to an end. And He was looking forward to his holiday. In fact, around that pool, we had a discussion about what each of us was going to be doing. And uh, he was going on holiday, and I was going to go on tour with Juran Juran. so he thought I was insane. (laughs) Um, But the the pictures bring back memories. And also, he showed up at um, a TV studio um, spontaneously, and it was semi-spontaneous. He hadn't planned it. But then he decided to do it, and it was the last show by this um, presenter. And the presenter said to David, "You know, why did you come? It was such a surprise." He said, "Oh, I was around the corner at a, a friend's birthday dinner, and I didn't cotton on. Uh, and what had happened was David did this interview so that he and so that he could keep an eye on me, because at one minute past midnight the whole tour was going to burst into my room when, with cameras and." wish me happy birthday oh, and oh. I couldn't find one of my little yeah it was amazing and I couldn't find one of my little cameras and it turned out someone had taken it and given it to David mm. so that he'd have one to use when he came in so it was very very sweet very thoughtful and and I was utterly shocked and he said did you cotton on when I said I was at dinner with a friend for his birthday well, well no <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was going to celebrate my birthday the following day <laughs>
0: Yeah. Um, I, I, so I, I'll tweet another image at this point Dennis um, I, again this is a, a wonderful shot from behind David Bowie on stage right out at the very lip of the stage it looked as, as if there's a kind of a, a semi-circle apron that he could walk almost right yeah. down into the middle of the audience so we have all these hands up in the air and Bowie himself uh, we see him from behind in, the, in a wonderful yellow suit almost matching the shock of blonde hair yeah. that he had at the time um, it, he, could he be Singing "Let's yeah. Dance" in that particular in that particular uh, pose or he, not? I don't know.
3: He was. Yeah, it was the very beginning of "Let's Dance," so he would put his arms out and then up with uh, as the, as the notes began, and the and the audience would do the same. So that is the very beginning of "Let's Dance" uh, at the Milton Keynes Bowl, and I went up on the scaffolding at the side of the stage a bit to get become to get higher than him so that I could turn the audience into a wall of people behind him. Um, and um, I was quite proud of that, really.
0: Yeah, I can see. I can see why. At RTE Arena, by the way, if you want to look at these uh, photographs that Dennis O'Regan is talking to us about, all part of his upcoming exhibition "Portrait in Flesh: My Life with David Bowie," and 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 the other aspect of that that I that I wondered uh, uh, about Dennis is, you know, that's the shot in in the actual yeah. arena itself, as you say. Yeah. And um, this was the point at which Bowie really shot to. Huge, I mean, he was a star previous to that, yes, but this was international stardom. This Things moved into a different scale on this tour.
3: They did, yeah. Well, the tour, when the tour began, he was booked into 10,000-seater arenas, which in London was Wembley Arena, but there were so many applications for tickets that they put on three of those shows in that photograph at Milton Keynes uh, at 65,000 people each night. So he was only going to play to 10,000 and ended up playing to nearly 200,000. So um, promoters all around the world then realised that they could sell David yeah. Bowie tickets in stadiums. And so the tour became much bigger than even he had thought it was going to be when the, when it began. So it was a surprise to everyone. And was that... And was then... You that... oh, sorry.
0: No, go, what were you going to say then, what?
3: No, I was just going to say that David then was asked to do a huge show in America... And um, the tour cancelled one of the shows in France so that we could go to America to do this one show. And he was paid enough for that show to buy another stage, another stage that would fit into stadiums. And that would enable him then in Europe, well, all over the world, to leapfrog. So one stage would be built in one place while he was playing on another in another mm. city. And then they would jump over each other and that way he could do more shows.
0: I wondered then when. So that was 1983, the Serious Moonlight Tour in and around the Let's Dance album. Yeah. When when it came to the Glass Spider Tour, which was 1987, uh, Never Let Me Down, um, the the album that he was looking. at yeah. uh, he, he was touring here. Was that a very different experience? I mean, the scale was there from the beginning, as opposed to kind of being discovered. Yes. as if you like, in the Serious Moonlight Tour.
3: Yeah, David wanted to do something different. And he now has a huge audience, which he hadn't had before that, um, Let's Dance. So he, he what he wanted to do was introduce them to songs they might not know as well, um, as well as the hits. Mm. But the audience came to hear the hits again. And, of course, he was David Bowie. He never did the same thing again. So once he'd done the Serious Moonlight Hood, it was all very pastely, um and uh, lightweight. Then came this huge show, which he'd rehearsed for quite a while with Dance. Uh, singers which was on a different sort of scale it went upwards through the scaffolding now that happens much more now i went to see coldplay where a similar thing happens, and it was all in different uh, sorry the killers mm. it was all in different levels in the stadium but david did that before anyone really so but the audience they weren't that happy about it so um the tour actually was more successful because as you say he started in stadiums from mm-hmm. day one but he wasn't as happy with it as he had been before. So and I don't, I he don't know to do something different.
0: This image that I want to tweet now, I, I I'm guessing it might well still be from the serious Moonlight tour, just because of the look that he has. But it's a black and white photograph at RTE Arena. If you want to see this, it's um, David Bowie, quite pensive mood in this particular case, Dennis. He's in a in a boat of some kind. Uh, I'm not sure where that is. Perhaps you yeah. you know exactly where it is, but. I wondered to what extent how posed is a picture like this? He was an artist, let's face it, who was more than aware of image and the power of the image. How posed was a photograph like this or how much do you as a photographer, particularly when you'd built up a relationship with him, just kind of snap those offhand moments that that's when you really see something that perhaps
3: you don't see in a posed image? That's That's exactly what it was because I'd been with him by this time. I'd been with him for eight months And we were now in the Far East. And that picture was taken in Bangkok on the river. And we'd been out on the river since three in the morning because the documentary crew was filming him. So he had never been there and I'd never been there. And it was just an amazing day where we've spent, I mean, nearly 20 hours out during that day. Went into houses on the river, went into the temples. And this was just David literally, as you say, sitting on the boat, relaxing, doing nothing, with his hat on his knee. And um, I think that's the picture. (laughs) Yeah, it is. It is the one. um, Yeah. Yeah, and it's just totally, totally relaxed. And I was in the boat with him and I looked and it looked like a great picture, so I took it. But there's absolutely no no iota Hmm. of posing involved in it. It was absolutely natural. How active... And that's what he looked at his best for me.
0: Yeah, I know he he looks amazing in that photograph for sure. How active was he in terms of... You know, his input into the images that you took and his input into the images that he allowed to go out for public consumption, as
3: it were, did he did he leave it up well, to the, you
0: or, or how, how involved was
3: he? He left it up to me. So I did what I wanted to do, but there were things that he wanted covered. So um, just a simple thing, like, you know, it's, it's all private jets and your bags are all collected and delivered to the hotel. But then on, on one flight, um, David got his own luggage trolley and pushed his trolley along with his luggage. And so that's a photograph that someone said, I think you should you should get that. And occasionally David would say something's happening or quite often he would, we would go to dinner, but he wanted me to take my camera. So hmm. I wasn't always um, over the moon about that because it would, it would be a day off if we were going to dinner. <laughs> uh, and now, you know, a, a couple of years ago, I'd have thought, this would be great. David Bowie's inviting me out to dinner. But when you're with him every day, it becomes less of an event. Hmm. And uh, I take my camera along and almost, you know, almost every time, invariably, I'd get a, a picture that was just interesting because it was informal. It was David doing what he would do, whether I was there or not. Uh, and a lot of those pictures I really really liked and in different countries in Japan he's sitting on the floor at dinner and then he put his little hat on and I started giggling and thought that was a really fun picture. It was all, it was so natural because it was two people right. just out and about. One, having fi-
0: fun. one final question. I'm, I'm wondering, I know there was an instance in, in Berlin. I don't know if it was in the Sirius Moonlight tour or the subsequent tour where he, he brought you along to an old apartment of his, which shows how kind of dad's worth yeah. <laughs> was. Did you have the camera with you that day and what happened?
3: It was in Berlin in 1987, so it was a Glass Spider tour, and the stage was set up in front of the Reichstag, and it was it was quite odd, really. He'd lived there, obviously, and we had been to um, Hansa Studios where he recorded Heroes, and I went up to the window that he'd looked from when he wrote the song, and said, and it was still as it was then. Now. It's Completely different. I said, should we go down and do some pictures by the Berlin Wall? And we did. But then at the show, David came off the stage after sound check, just walked down the steps, and said, should we go back to my old apartment? Just out of the blue. And great. Okay, so <laughs> jumped in the car, went around, uh, and David knocked on the door, and the guy who lived there opened the door. <laughs> I still giggle now, <laughs> so long, so many years later. And um, and uh, he said, oh, he said, oh hi, I'm David. I used to live here. <laughs> so we <were laughs> we went here and went around the apartment and um, David loved seeing it. It had been repainted but they'd painted around drawings that David's son had done on the walls. Oh, wow. So he was really, yeah, he was really pleased about that. And then we left and had... Yeah, and we left and he, and he just giggled and said, God, that guy handled that well. <laughs> he
0: certainly did to say that, cool. Hi, hi David,
3: he come on go, in. He yeah. didn't go, oh my God. <laughs> yeah. yeah <exactly. laughs>
0: Listen, lovely to have spoken with you and um, uh, obviously some of the images that That's we've been tweeting um, give us a sense of what was involved. We'll finish up with a little bit of music from um, Let's Dance, from the album with China Girl. But let me remind people that a portrait in Flesh My Life with David Bowie photographic ex- exhibition by Dennis Regan, who's been speaking to us, runs at Rathfarnham Farnham Gallery. Castle Gallery from January the fourth through until February the eleventh, Dublin Bowie Festival.ie for details on that and everything at the festival and let's have a bit of China Girl. <coughs> The impact of French composer Gabriel Fauré cannot be overstated. His work connects Romanticism with the dawn of the 20th century. He was born in 1845. Best known for his remarkable and serene Requiem, described once as a lullaby of death. Foremost composers, of one of the foremost composers of his generation, uh, but his influence stretched far beyond that. He is, this year marks the centenary of Fauré's death in 1924, and music for Galway is shining a spotlight on Gabriel Fauré's work in this year's Midwinter Festival. Three chamber concerts and a performance of the Sublime Requiem. Joining me now to tell us more about these events, uh, our conductor, Mark Dooley, who will take to the helm at a performance of Requiem at St. Nicholas's Church, along with soprano soloist Saoirse. And I meant to check this, Saoirse. Do I say the K in your name? Is it Knauer <laughs> or do I, is it a silent K?
4: You pronounce the K. You it's do It's Knauer. Well.
0: Knauer um, yeah, An unusual name for sure. Um, <laughs> anyway, let us let us put your name to the one side and talk about your singing. Um, first of all, uh, uh, is, uh, uh, let's talk about what the soprano has to do in uh, Foray's Requiem. He knew how to write for voice in a very particular type of way, Sophie. Or Saoirse, I beg your pardon.
4: <laughs> uh, yeah, so in this particular work, um, the soprano solo s- sings the P- uh, PAA mm. Um, that is the only point at which there is a soprano soloist. There is a baritone as well at different points mm. um, throughout the work, which will be sung by Benoit Capt, um, a Swiss baritone.
0: And what is the challenge or what is the, the joy of what Foray gives you in that Pie in particular?
4: Um, I suppose in this particular, in the Pie he's he's asking God for eternal rest. Mm. Um, so, I suppose it just kind of brings a certain amount of serenity um, to, to which is show, you can hear in the music.
0: Yeah, well, let, let's have a listen to a version of the Pia Jesu. And this is um, featuring uh, the Collegium Vocale. Well, in fact, it's the soprano Johanne Sommer who is uh, performing here along with La Chapelle Royale, all conducted by Philippe Hereveca, the Pia Jesu. opening section there of the Pie Jesu from Gabriel forey 's Requiem and that featuring a soprano called Johannet Zommer. It is one of the pieces, well it's the big piece that has to be sung by soprano Saoirse Knower at the upcoming performance of Music for Galway of this Requiem and the entire affair will be conducted by Mark Dooley. I, I wanted to start with a piece of, of music like that, Mark, to to give a sense, in fact, if you think of Mozart's requiem it's all big drama it's almost like an opera similarly with Verdi's requiem you know there's yes there's a sacred aspect to it but it's very dramatic stuff indeed the Gabriel Fauré requiem goes right against all of that big drama for a much more intimate style
5: Yes, indeed. I mean, he, Forey himself said that he, in this requiem, he sees death as a, as a, as a joyful deliverance rather than a sort of a judgment on, on a sinful life. And I think his focus is very much about the happiness that exists beyond the grave. Um, and you can sense that in, in this work. And, and that's why I think it's such a revolutionary piece because no one had ever written a requiem like that before. As you say yourself, the Mozart Requiem's full of, you know, the, the the dramatic mm. touches and and then of course later on Verdi take to a greater extreme so four A offers a very very different uh, interpretation
0: and the other aspect that I think is interesting I mean we hear in that P A S it's just an organ accompaniment it does it does in other sections of the of the requiem for sure there are other instruments involved but it is a small ensemble and it's a small ensemble version that you will be giving us in Galway as well.
5: Yes, well Forey's original version
0: from 1888 was for a small orchestra
5: with no violins except for for, for a solo violin at, at a particular point um but it was very much a chamber work he did orchestrate it later but we're performing it uh, our performance which is with a large all-comers choir is is going to be largely accompanied by the organ but we are going to have a few sort of little cameo moments as it were for harp and for violin which which make a, a particular contribution to the work but it is it is in a sense a chamber piece i think um and of course, as, as we know, Foray, that, that, that was the sort of medium in which he excelled. He didn't really um, go for the, the, the large-scale structures and the, the large number of players that other mm. composers might have. He, he was very much a, a chamber musician, I think. Uh,
0: and the other aspect of it is, I wondered how religious a man was Gabriel Foray? Because obviously the Requiem has its, it has its origins in the, the celebration of the Mass. Did he bring a very strong religious belief with him in, in, the, in the composing of this piece, to the composing of this piece? Uh, it's an
5: interesting question. I don't think he was terribly religious. In fact, there are stories of him being caught. He a church organist um, for most of his working life but he, he wasn't terribly um, involved in the liturgy, shall we say, and he mm. was caught nipping out nipping out for a fag during the sermon and another occasion where he, he turned up to play on the Sunday morning, still in his party outfit from, from the night before. So I don't, I, don't, I don't think he was terribly religious, but he did have a real sense of liturgy, mm. and I think um, he said himself that, um, you know, after years of accompanying funerals on the organ, he wanted to do something different, but he wanted to do that within the liturgical context, and he always intended it. As a liturgical piece, in fact, its yeah. performance was within the liturgy, within an actual funeral, and and indeed it was performed at his own funeral. But he never saw it as a concert piece, I don't think. Yeah. So he had a, a real a real sensitivity to the liturgy, even if he might not have been the most devout believer, shall we say?
0: Yeah, I think I heard Paul Harriot, because it was performed in the concert hall on Friday evening uh, last by the Symphony National Symphony Orchestra. I think I heard Paul Harriot mentioning uh, on lyric that his son Gaffare's uh, son. <laughs> said that at very best, you could say that his father was sceptical about religion, uh, right? yeah. <laughs> which I think might, might kind of give us a sense of it. I'm wondering too, Sophie, yeah. in, in terms of, the, obviously, this is the Requiem that you're involved in here. Are there songs? Are there? Are you involved in other parts of the festival? Because I think Foray also composed um, a leader. Am I
4: right in thinking that? Uh, yes, but I am staying only with the Requiem, with the requiem. for this time. Yeah.
0: But there will be there will be um, leader performed and and chamber works performed as uh, in other sections of this midwinter festival.
4: Yeah, so I believe on the Friday evening there will be a concert with um, a few different instruments. Mm. Um, They'll be performing music mainly from his from eighteen seventy to eighteen eighty. So. Ballad yeah. for piano and F sharp minor, and yeah, the quintet is going to
0: be yeah, the quintet is going to be in there in in the midst of that, which I think yeah. is, is one of the major pieces. I'll finish, um, Mark, with the final piece in uh, for his Requiem, the In Paradisum. How would you describe what he does in this seventh and final yeah. section of the Requiem?
5: Well, it's a very interesting addition to what would have been considered a, a sort of a kosher uh, requiem mass, as it were. Um, the, the, the in parodiesum was usually part of the burial rite, but it wasn't actually part of the requiem mass itself. So Foray adds that. And I think it's a very interesting addition to the work because it's, it, it's a be- it is perhaps the most beautiful. Um, of, of the choral sections of, of of the of the work, and with the with the harp part and these mm-hmm. floating lines for the sopranos, it
0: really just takes us beyond the grave to this happy place beyond. Yes, so I, I think it's a very very important part of it. Yeah, it certainly is that. And if paradise is like this, we might all want to go there. Let's finish up yeah. by listening to a little bit of an in paradisum from His Requiem. Stuff indeed in paradisum. The final movement of Gabriel Fauré's Requiem, thanks to soprano soloist Siarsha Canar and conductor Mark Dooley. Uh, for more details of the Foray performances at the Music for Galway Midwinter Festival, including the Requiem, which will take place in St Nicholas's Church in Galway on Saturday, the twentieth of January. That and other details on Music for Galway. And that is our lot for this Monday evening here on on Arena. Leah Murphy and Niall Fitzmaurice were the researchers. Ollie Hamilton was the broadcast coordinator. Harry Bookless was on sound this evening. And tonight's programme was produced by Kei Sheehy. Talk to you tomorrow night once again here on RTE Radio 1. And Ray Cudahy will be with you after the 8 o'clock news.